apologise that the outline that I sent for this morning has not made it through uh, onto your piece of paper. That's my fault for being so late with my outline. Uh, I, I began with, a, or I'm going to begin with a quote from David Hume, and uh, it's a shame that you don't have it there. It's quite an interesting quote, so you have to listen carefully. It's uh, written in the middle of the 18th century, and um, therefore the language is a little peculiar to our ears. But uh, try and stay with it, and then I'll make some comments about it and get us moving. Uh, Hume writes this, Where am I or what? From what causes do I derive my existence and to what condition shall I return? Whose favour shall I court and whose anger must I dread? (coughs) What beings surround me and on whom have I any influence or who have any influence on me? I'm confounded with all these questions and begin to fancy myself in the most deplorable condition imaginable, environed or stuck in an environment with the deepest darkness and utterly deprived of the use of every member and faculty. Uh, so wrote David Hume, one of the great philosophers of the English language tradition, and I think that's a fascinating quote, and I want to begin our time this afternoon with it for two reasons. The first reason is that I suspect for many of us it strikes us as completely and entirely bizarre. The thought that questions about meaning, existence, moral obligation and power should actually matter to us, matter enough and weigh so heavily on our minds that in fact we might be paralysed by them, as he describes it, deprived of the use of every member and faculty, I think is almost unimaginable for us. For most of us, the thing that really excites our interest is the sale of the units in the block over the weekend or perhaps whether you think the Wallabies can get their act together in time for the World Cup. I want to suggest in many ways that this is the single most anti-intellectual period of history. And in the words of one commentator, Neil Postman, as a culture we are amusing ourselves to death, as he titled his 1985 book. Our action-to-information ratio is at an all-time low, as through the genius of modern technology we now have virtually unlimited access to data on every imaginable subject. Google is absolutely superb, and you get your 475,000 hits and simply don't know what to do with it after you've looked at the first three. We have massive quantities of information and do virtually nothing with them. And so I want to challenge you this afternoon to be a little less contemporary and a little more Humean, to get worried and therefore to get active about the big issues of life. Now the second reason I begin with a quote from Hume uh, is what he does with it. He goes on in the following paragraph to describe where he found comfort. I quote, Most fortunately it happens that since reason is incapable of dispelling these clouds, nature herself suffices to that purpose and cures me of this philosophical melancholy and delirium, either by relaxing this bent of mine or by some invocation and lively impression of my senses which obliterate all these shimmerers. Nature, says Hume, through her operation on his senses, dispelled this cloud of philosophical melancholy and it's upon these sense impressions, uh, according to David Hume, that we should build our knowledge. As it turns out, 
Uh, Hume's radical version of empiricism might have done the job for him in the mid-1700s, but since uh, then it has been subject to a devastating criticism and is now basically discredited. So this afternoon I want to commend to you and argue for an alternative means of curing whatever philosophical and personal melancholy and delirium I can invoke in you or that you might be presently experiencing. And that is to find such a cure in the one true and living God who has come to us in the person of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. I take it to the very fact that you are here today, this afternoon, indicates that you have at least some openness to such a proposal and so I'm going to proceed as follows. The first point I want to make is something of a ground-clearing exercise. We live in a fundamentally post-Christian era where Christianity is almost entirely unknown and unstudied. It's almost without exception misrepresented and ridiculed in the media and about which there is virtual ignorance as to what it really is. We Christians are constantly frustrated when people say they reject the Christian faith because the thing they reject is so often not Christianity in any recognisable form. And so I want to summarise the fundamental claims of the Christian faith under four headings. The second thing that I want uh, briefly to do is to present what I take to be the four main motives people have for not taking Christianity seriously. Some of them are serious philosophical objections, some of them are more gut reactions, and for each one I'm going to argue that they don't constitute good reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. And then the third thing I want to do is to make a positive case and present three reasons that I regard as fairly compelling for taking the Christian faith seriously. And not just seriously, but passionately and committedly. Now, don't mishear me here. Uh, We're going to cover a lot of territory. I'm going to speak quite fast, uh, but I won't nearly do it justice as if you could do it justice in the space of the 35 or so minutes that we have remaining. Uh, I also make no claim for knockdown arguments here. If I had them, I would publish them and get rich. Most of what you can prove with knockdown arguments is, frankly, not that valuable in the knowing of it. Most of life doesn't work that way. If you're after knockdown arguments on this issue, well, just start applying that to other issues and see how far you get. What I do hope to do today is to give you enough of a push that you will be willing to take the next step. Instead of being a curious converser about these things, to be an active investigator of them. And at the end, I'm going to invite you to take that step. So firstly then, what is this crazy little thing called Christianity? Let me make four points. Point number one. The fundamental claim of the Christian faith is this, that there is a real, independent, personal, active being to whom we refer as God. And that the specific name of God is a reflection of his specific being, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now, in a sense, this almost seems silly to say it, but the starting point has to be this claim that there is a real, independent, personal, active being that really does exist, whose existence is not dependent upon us or on being known by us, whose reality is not changed by what we like or prefer, that God is a reality just like you are a reality. In fact, much more real than you or I. Real in a way that we are not in that we come into existence and we go out of existence, but God always was and always is and always will be. 
When we speak of God, we're not talking about human experiences, we're not talking about a universal human feeling, although human beings might have experiences and feelings in response to that reality, that's not the point. What's wrong developing this just a little further, this reality is a specific reality. It has defining characteristics, just like you have defining characteristics. I am a male human being. I'm not a horse. Although occasionally my kids treat me that way and for a time I exhibit horse-like characteristics. <laughs> Deep down in the fundamental structure of the reality of who I am and what I am, I'm a male human being. You might not like that. You might hate males. You may prefer horses for all I care. <laughs> but all of that is irrelevant. You may think I'm unworthy to be a human being. That matters not the slightest. I am what I am. I am one thing and I'm not another. It's the same with God. God is who he is and what he is and he is that thing and not another. And in particular the reality of God is captured in his name. My name happens to be Andrew. That comes from the Greek word anair or man. So my name really means manly. <laughs> it in fact has virtually nothing to do with the reality of who I am and in that sense my name is accidental I could just as easily have been called Cedric <laughs> happily I was not <laughs> apologies to any Cedrics out there <laughs> unlike my name or your name though God's name is an expression of God's reality <coughs> God's specific reality and his name is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is the name of God according to Christians because that is the nature of God's reality. You might not like it, you might not understand it, but then again, whenever does reality conform to what you like or understand? What you like and understand are simply not relevant at this point. You have to conform what you like and what you understand to that reality. And this is the absolute heart of the Christian faith that God is an independent, active, personal reality. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now three things follow from that. The first is that this means God stands in a fundamental and asymmetrical relationship to all other things. He stands in the relationship of creator to creature. Creator to creation. By asymmetrical relationship, I mean a relationship which is not symmetrical. That is, where what he is to us is not what we are to him. What he is to us is our creator. What we are to him are his creatures. All things, including all people, including every one of us and everything in this room now, are dependent upon him for our very existence he is completely independent of us. Were he to withdraw himself from you, you would cease to exist. Were you to withdraw yourself from him, as if that were possible, he frankly would continue to exist regardless. This then leads to a, a further point. It's what I call the paradox of exclusiveness and universality. That is, it's precisely because this God is the exclusive, specific creator and sustainer of all things, that therefore all things, utterly universally all things and all people owe their love and their loyalty and their trust to him. You can get the point by contrast. Imagine, for example, 
that there were two gods who got together and divided up the universe between them. Maybe a line down where the stairs are, just right there. God A and God B over there. In that case, it would be legitimate, wouldn't it, for 50% of people to entirely ignore God A because they belong to God B. God A couldn't touch them because they weren't his. He's not the exclusive God and so he can't make universal claims. But the Christian claim is precisely not that. It is that this specific one true and living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is the exclusive, exclusive creator and sustainer God and therefore has an absolutely universal stake in the lives and affairs of all people. The contours of that stake are wonderfully loving faithfulness. That is God's stance toward what and who he has made. Wonderfully loving faithfulness. This then leads to two further points. I've said there's a specific reality who is our creator and sustainer and therefore two other things follow. Firstly, this one has the moral and spiritual right and authority to determine how we creatures relate to our creator. It's not up to us to decide what we believe about God or how we go about responding to God. It's up to God. Another way to put this is to say that there is such a thing as idolatry. There is false worship of God. It doesn't change the fundamental relation between God and such people. They're still his creatures whom he loves and is faithful to. But it is false worship. To name God as other than Father, Son and Holy Spirit, for example, does not just fall within the freedom of a person's preference, just as to name me a horse doesn't fall within the power of your preferences. That's not harsh or narrow or bigoted. It's just true. At least it's true if our first point is true. But there's a second thing which follows uh, from this. Namely, that God has acted decisively in Jesus to restore, establish and secure a right relationship with all of his creation. The place where God is known, where God has revealed himself, but more than that, the place where God has not just shown things but done things is in Jesus of Nazareth, himself the personal presence of God with us. It is in Jesus and only in Jesus precisely because Jesus is not just a messenger who's delivering a message from someone else but who is himself God. It is in Jesus and only in Jesus that God can be known. Jesus himself said, no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom he chooses to reveal him. In the same way it is in Jesus and only in Jesus precisely again because Jesus is not just a good person but God himself that we can be right with God. Jesus is God come amongst us. God come to us. God come into our place. God himself living our life, dying our death, rising to new life as, a new, as the start of a new phase in the way that God relates to his creation where we all live in forgiveness and grace. What's more, this job comes in two parts. What God has begun in Jesus, he will complete in Jesus. Jesus is alive now, is the claim. We'll come to it in a moment. And he will return to finish the job, to completely clean up this world, to eradicate evil 
and violence and hatred and death and sickness and pain. That is God's project. What else would God do as he is faithful to his world, the world he created and the world he loves? And therefore Christians are endlessly, relentlessly active in trying to persuade other people to become Christians, to align themselves with reality, to know their origin and their destiny and to participate in this world to come. That is the Christian faith in a very small nutshell. You read the source documents and that is what they say. So can I urge you, if you reject Christianity, make sure it is this thing that you reject. Make sure that you understand the inner logic of it and see the coherence of it. Don't be merely prejudiced or worse, ignorant, rejecting something that you haven't grasped. Now, I realise that that's a big set of claims that I've just outlined, that I've done through very quickly indeed, and uh, that I've not made any arguments for or against. I've just tried to set it out in the clearest possible terms so that we all agree and all understand what it is that we're talking about. What then can we say about this complex set of claims? Well, there are four common objections, I think, to it, which we're going to look at briefly, each of which I think can be dealt with. And then I'm going to suggest three reasons which I'll argue are compelling for taking the Christian faith with the utmost seriousness as the place where we can find personal, but not just personal, universal meaning and significance. Okay, so four in my heading here, which you don't have, not so good reasons for ignoring Christianity. Christianity, I suspect, is barely even a live option for many people, at least in the Western world today. As it turns out, two billion people uh, in the world identify themselves currently as Christians, and it is growing massively in Africa, Asia and South America. Uh, You can be typically imperialist, if you like, and say, well, what, what else would a bunch of primitives like Africans, Asians and South Americans do except become Christians? But of course, if I were you, I wouldn't say that too loudly. It may say, of course, more about the decadence and degeneracy of Western culture than it does say about Christianity itself. Why then is Christianity not taken seriously in our culture? I want to say, uh, suggest that the first and fairly gut level reason people have for basically ignoring it is that we simply can't see God. That you can't shake his hand, you can't slap him on the back. Or perhaps if you're feeling hostile, kick him in the shins if you feel like it. You can't run scientific tests to see what he's made of. You can't do psychological examinations to see whether he's sane. What's more, while you can't see God, you can see just about everything else. Or in other words, through science and technology, we're able to explain many things about the world we live in. And so we don't even need God to fill in the gaps in our knowledge. There simply aren't that many gaps left to fill in. There are a few things to say about this. The first is... Of course you can't see God. Of course you can't run scientific tests on him. Of course he's not just like everything else. All the things that we can see and experiment on are finite, limited, controllable. And if there's one thing that's true about God, it's that he's not limited by time or space or weakness, that he can't be outsmarted or the object of his own creatures. He's not visible uh, to scientific tests. 
as though we can somehow stand in mastery or judgement or assessment over him. To think that you could see God is simply to misunderstand what Christianity is about. It's simply to misunderstand point A right where we started. The second thing to say about this is that even though he's not visible, in that he is far greater than to be limited by time and space, uh, I'm going to suggest that there's plenty of evidence of the exercise of this great power. That God's power and majesty are apparent everywhere around us. Again, at a gut level, whether you're into the outdoors and have, as I've done, gazed down the Megalong Valley in the Blue Mountains at sunset and seen the light streaming through the trees and thought that this just has to be a gift from God. Or you're a parent who's experienced the wonder of childbirth, that from a couple of microscopic cells should grow a life so intricate and perfect that it knows to the second when to start breathing and you thank God for it as a gut instinct and reaction. Or whether you've known the power of relationships and forgiveness and love and seen God at work and thought there is more to life than atoms and molecules. It's a gut level response to what I think is a gut level issue. issue. We'll come back to a more philosophical version uh, in a moment. But there's all sorts of ways that we see not God himself but the power and activity of God in his world. The third thing to say actually is that of course God was visible you just weren't around when the opportunity was available. That is when God turned up, when he gave his own son Jesus of Nazareth who himself is God into the world to reveal decisively who he is it was quite possible to see God. In fact many of those who did see him worshipped him as exactly that. You're just a couple of thousand years behind the times. But that's no reason to say that no one has ever seen God. The problem lies merely in your birth certificate. Well, the second reason I'm going to suggest I think has a bit more power to it. That is the problem of evil. What I mean by that is um, that so much suffering goes on in the world, so much pain and evil, and God seems to do so little about it that it seems like God, if he is there, is just kicking us around like a soccer ball. Now you may not have experienced the dark uh, or tragic side of life yet, although, let me say, suffering is no respecter of youth, and you may well know what it is to feel the despair of life and death. Now for me, I've to this point been relatively untouched. A while back though, my 11-year-old nephew was dropped down some concrete steps by his aunt, uh, I was on the other side of the family, I'll just point out. Uh, he suffered three fractures to the back of his skull just above the brain stem, which is a really lousy place, place to crack your skull if you're going to do that. Uh, as it turns out, he was okay. But it was a terrible scare, one of those kind of utterly pointless and tr- potentially tragic accidents that could easily have been so much worse. You see, it on a global scale, with the, with the abhorrent things that take place in the Congo and Liberia and the Sudan right through to the personal details of your own lives as you experience suffering in a profoundly personal way. That's the kind of world that we live in. What are we, what are we to make of it? If there was a God, how could he simply sit back and let it happen? Let me say, this is a real problem. This is a genuine challenge and I think it cuts deepest into the soul of someone who believes in God. Again, it's not like I have a simple uh, explanation or knockdown arguments. 
Uh, simple explanations to deep problems are almost always a con job, aren't they? But I would say three things. Firstly, you only really feel the force of the problem if you think things should be different. You only really feel the force of the problem if you think things should be different. For the, for the atheist, for the genuine atheist who thinks that everything and every person, the whole show is just rearranged primordial sludge, the random distribution of material particles, so that some form chairs, and some form plants and some form people, but that in essence they're all really just the same thing and the same stuff. If that's what you think, if you're a hard materialist, then there is no problem with suffering and evil. Right? There's no problem with it. It's just that some primordial sludge lasts longer and has a better time of it than other bits. Now, I want to suggest that if you think there is a problem, if you think things ought to be different and that people matter, that people are more than bricks, then you're actually very close to being committed to the fact that there's a God who gives meaning and value to things. At that level, I want to suggest that those who put forward the problem of evil are in fact self-refuting. Self-refuting. The second thing to say is that it's not as though God is doing nothing about the situation. His purpose is to defeat all evil, to put away all suffering, to eliminate the very cause of tears, to end pain and to remake the world the way that it was meant to be. That he is slower about it than you might like is one thing. That you and I can't understand why he delays is one thing. But that he is callously indifferent to it is just not true. That's just not the Christian faith. If your heart, fickle and inconsistent though it is, cries out against the injustice and the pain of evil, how much more does God's heart of pure and undiluted compassion? Third thing, two more reasons that people have for not taking Christianity seriously. Uh, the, the first is that it seems so harsh. You hear this often, don't you? That it seems so negative about other people and other religions. It seems so arrogant, so condemnatory of genuine, sin, genuinely sincere people. Again, this I think is a fairly gut level sort of response, but it's actually uh, got some validity to it. I'll suggest it's also a gut reaction to a distortion of Christianity not to the real thing. Let me say again uh, a couple of things about it. Firstly, uh, it is not that God doesn't care and happily consigns people to hell. Right? That's the point I made in point, uh, point B in my four-point presentation. The paradox of exclusiveness and universality. He loves all people. That's the heart of the Christian faith. He loves all people because he and he alone created and sustains all people including giving people the very strength and life to despise him. Even more than that, he is so committed to people, he is so desperate that people don't perish, that he sent his son to die for all people. It's a gross distortion of Christianity to say that he just doesn't care. But the second thing is that God is specific. He is in his very nature Father, Son and Spirit he's not something or someone else the Christian claim is that he is not Allah and Muhammad is not his prophet he's not the great ocean of being 
and Buddha is not the one who leads to enlightenment. He is not Thor and he is not anything else other than what and who he is. It is simply foggy thinking to hope that two things that are different might actually be the same and that that's the way we can all get on together. Uh, There's a heartwarming article in the paper this morning uh, here on page 8. No, page 7. For these three, kindness begins in the hearts of innocence. Uh, It uh, speaks of a Christian, a Muslim and a Jew who visited a school to promote peace and tolerance. A very worthy goal and a good thing to do. But the way they go about that, or at least the way they're reported, is ridiculous. The Muslim representative from the Forum on Australia's Islamic Relations is quoted as pointing out that Allah is just another word from God. Well, fair enough as far as it goes. A little later on a kid is quoted as saying that Christians believe in one God just like Muslims and Jews. No, we don't. You understand that, don't you? No, we don't. We believe in one God whose identity is specific and precise. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Muslims deny that Jesus is God's Son at all. They are speaking about a fundamentally different reality. Now I'm all for social tolerance. And in fact it's often Christians who have been at the forefront of movements for freedom of speech and association and religion, including non-Christian religions. I'm all for social tolerance. But social tolerance is a different thing from truth tolerance. As though the only way that we can all get along is to pretend that deep down we all think the same thing. We don't. And it's actually deeply disrespectful and in fact arrogant to say that we do. We don't. That then leads on to the fourth objection and that is this. This is the objection of relativism. That is, you just can't know about these sorts of things. It's just beyond us and so we should really just get up, sorry, give up and get on with having as much fun in life as possible. Uh, although it's something of a caricature, Western philosophy, at least as it's popularised, has swung from one extreme across to another. It began with what you might call a naive realism. That is, the view that there is an independently existing reality to be explored and that we can have immediate and direct access through our senses and minds to that. You could draw that like this. Here's us and our minds. Here's reality. And we have immediate and direct access via our minds and our senses to reality. And in many ways it's this concept that underlies the entire scientific endeavour. However, throughout the last century, this approach has been subjected to substantial criticism and a whole host of ways has been unmasked as a cover-up. So often the conclusions that were drawn about the the way things were in reality were just a cultural version of reality. So often people's readings of texts were not simply what the text said, but their interpretation of what the text said. History was not so much what happened, but what people wrote about what happened and often for personal reasons and prejudices. You see what happens? More and more the pendulum swung so that we were increasingly finding ourselves cut off from reality and confined merely to our own minds. All we could talk about under what's called postmodernism, you may have heard of it, all we can talk about is our perspective, our interpretation, 
our construction of reality. Everything, therefore, is relative to us. You can offer the picture. Like this. Right? We just cut off from reality. And in particular, religion, and especially Christianity, was a focal point for this critique. Now, there are a couple of things inside of this. <clears throat> uh, the first is that, at a hard level, what you might call hard relativism, uh, is actually self-refuting. Again, hard relativism is a claim that, as a matter of reality, reality is relative to the person. But you see a problem there, don't you, as soon as I say it. It's still a claim about reality. It's still a claim to be able to stand back from the board here and analyse things apart from reality. It's a non-relative claim about reality. It's a claim which the hard relativist thinks is the case, whether or not you accept it. When hard relativists write books espousing their hard relativism and you interpret them to be saying that they're really espousing a strong form of realism, they get cross at you. And they say that you're misreading them and misinterpreting them because there is a true reading and a true interpretation which you're not getting. Hard relativism, I think, is simply self-refuting. But there's a softer version which needs to be taken more seriously. I think it's true to say that our understandings of things are obviously influenced by our situation, our histories, our preferences and so on. That point is to be welcomed and naive realism should be rejected. But that need not send us into the arms of a hard relativism. <coughs> Instead, what if at the same time as we don't cut ourselves off from reality, what if at the same time as recognising this, we also recognise something else? That this ultimate reality has in fact come to us. That God himself has bridged the gap between our ignorance and lack of access to the external world and has made himself known, which of course is the Christian claim. Uh, in this sense, it's not epistemological arrogance to be a Christian and believe in the uniqueness of Christianity. Christians are so often accused of being arrogant. That's just to misunderstand the nature of Christianity. The claim is that God has revealed himself to us. In fact, our claim is not, is, is not only that it's not arrogant to be a Christian, our claim is respectfully that it's arrogant not to be a Christian. We call it pride. To think that you, apart from God, can know and understand and draw conclusions about the nature of reality in the finitude of your own mind and understanding and to not uh, recognise that what you have is a gift from him, including the gift of knowledge of himself. It's not arrogant to be a Christian. It's arrogant not to be a Christian. Now, there may be other reasons why people and why you uh, uh, reject and don't take seriously the Christian faith. I've tried to cover what I see and uh, hear as I talk to people are the four main reasons. I want to say that they're flawed. I've tried to argue that briefly, either because they're self-refuting or simply because they don't understand the thing that they're rejecting. Are there any positive reasons for taking Christianity seriously then? Very briefly, I want to suggest three. The first one is the testimony of the world that God has made. 
If God is the single exclusive creator of the world, then it would make sense to think that he's left something of his fingerprints on the thing that he's made. In fact, there's a whole branch of philosophical and theoretical science by some major academics around the world that are grappling with this issue of the testimony of the world that God has made to its creator under two main branches. The first is to do with the origin of the universe, in particular that the universe is not eternal. One of the main scientific developments of the last century was the formulation of the Big Bang Theory, that is, that the universe, including space and time itself, began or came into being. Interestingly, it was primarily atheist philosophers and scientists who objected most strenuously to this discovery, and for good reason. For a simple argument runs like this. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. That's a powerful argument. That's a powerful argument. Of course, the reason it's a powerful argument is that the thing that caused the universe must itself not be part of that universe, not within space and time, which were created at the Big Bang. must be changeless and immaterial and unimaginably powerful. Even more, that cause must be personal. Since there are only two types of causal explanation, scientific explanations, which have to do with laws uh, and initial conditions and so on, and personal explanations, which have to do with agents and their intentions. Since the universe, uh, the cause of the universe can't have a scientific explanation, in that we're talking about the beginning of everything, then it must have a personal explanation. In other words, this cause sounds a lot like God, which is precisely why it was atheist philosophers and and, uh, uh, scientists who were most resistant to the Big Bang discovery. Notice one thing here. The point is not that everything must have a cause, so you then get to ask the tricky five-year-old question, what caused God? The point is that everything that begins has a cause. And from point A, the claim is that God never began. He always was and always will be, unlike the universe. I think that's a significant hint there and you need to deal with that argument. The second has to do with the nature of the universe in which we live. That is that it is a universe so unimaginably finely balanced to create life that it literally reeks of design and therefore a designer, an intelligent and personal transcendent maker. The so-called intelligent design movement within the philosophy of science is pressing this issue, pointing out that the universe is so wonderfully fine-tuned for intelligent life that the best inference is that of a designer. The world itself testifies uh, to taking Christian faith seriously. Secondly, the testimony of history especially the history of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. The claim here is simple but powerful. Unlike all other prophets, all others who claim to speak for God, all other people who said that they had insight into the heart of reality, Jesus has not stayed dead. God was perfectly happy to allow King David to stay dead and decay, to allow Muhammad to stay dead and decay to allow the Buddha to stay dead and decay and you will die and decay as well. Death triumphed over all of these people. They were powerless in its face. 
Not so Jesus. God pulled back the fabric of the universe, reached in and raised him from the dead. He hauled him out of death's grip. He vindicated him and abandoned all others. He demonstrated that Jesus alone is the one who speaks for him because he alone is the son of the father. Now notice this is not merely a claim about a miracle. This is a claim about the day God showed decisively where he is to be found and what he is doing. Now there are three main pieces of historical evidence for this resurrection of Jesus. The first is the empty tomb. That Jesus' body was placed in a tomb on the Friday afternoon and when the women went to anoint his body on the Sunday morning, it was gone. What happened to it? Some suggest that he never died. The so-called swoon theory. Utterly historically implausible. That he kind of was on the cross, the Romans didn't know how to kill people uh, adequately on a cross, shoved him into the tomb, that he staggered up, moved the rock, overpowered the Roman guards and kind of moved to the coast or something. It's ridiculous. Some suggested that the Romans or the Jews stole his body. Again, that is historically implausible since they could easily have crushed the early Christian movement by producing it. Others suggest that the disciples stole the body and then set up a big hoax. But almost without exception, they were martyred for their faith and people aren't martyred for a hoax. The second piece of evidence is that Jesus appeared alive to dozens of people at one time a group of 500, more than twice our size here. It was a certifiable public fact. And thirdly, the emergence of the early church can only be explained in terms of the resurrection. At the cross they were a dispirited, broken group of losers. A week later they were courageous heroes who led a movement that would within a couple of months claim 10% of the population of Jerusalem for its membership and within a couple of hundred years the entire Roman Empire. Again, I'm not claiming that this is a knockdown argument simply that if you have not investigated the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus honestly, then you should say to yourself that your rejection of Christianity is really just a matter of prejudice, not a matter of intelligent thought. Finally, and I'll close with this point, I want to suggest that it is the Christian faith that makes best sense of the world. It takes with utmost seriousness the reality of evil. It takes with utmost seriousness the reality of goodness and well. Uh, It recognises in human beings both magnificence and depravity. It speaks of the power of love and grace, uh, the significance of forgiveness and sacrifice. It provides us with an intellectually, spiritually, morally and emotionally satisfying meaning. It has a redemptive power which is seen in the lives of of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people across the world and slightly fewer here at Sydney University. And so what I want to ask you is this. Will you investigate this? Will you move from being an occasional converser about these things to someone who takes seriously the Christian claim that looks at the evidence that is presented, that evaluates the internal coherence of it, that tests your own arguments against it and engages with others on this matter. I can't see that you have anything to lose by taking this seriously. Uh, It is no great thing 
to reject something which has a powerful claim for being taken seriously and yet which you simply decide that you can't be bothered uh, to look into. Now, I'm going to ask you to take out these uh, response forms now. <clears throat> I'm going to ask uh, everyone to uh, fill in the form. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, if everyone's filling in the form, then no one feels embarrassed or coy about filling in the form. Uh, I'm very keen to hear your comments or feedback on what it is that I've said today. Uh, you may have uh, nothing to say except that you think I would have been better off as a horse or something like that. Um, I, I don't think I've given you enough information or made a compelling case for you to have decided to become a Christian today. And in fact, I'm not going to ask you to do that. That would be, I think, intellectually unfair to you. But what I do think that I've given you is decent reason for you to find out more about Christianity. And I want to urge you not to back off for fear. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It may help you to indicate who you came with just so that uh, we can put you in touch with that person and so on. Um, and it may be that you have other comments that you'd like to write on the back. Uh, fill in your name and phone number. This is not going to be given to the uh, Reader's Digest. You will not be hounded or persecuted. If you say, I've decided to change my mind, I don't want to find out anymore, I'd rather stick my head in the sand, that's okay. We're not going to hound you. We'll delete all record of your existence from our database. Thank you.